We've begun our study in the book of John, and we said that one of the desired results of our study of the book of John is that we as a church could have an exalted Christology, an exalted Christology. And what that means is simply that we have an accurate biblical picture understanding of who Jesus is. That's all that means. We don't want to have a Jesus of our own imagination, right? Now, there are plenty of churches or denominations or religions who have some unbiblical notion of who Jesus is. And if we are worshiping or following a Jesus that is not biblical, really we're just worshiping a figment of our imagination, right? We want to make sure that we understand who Christ is according to Scripture. And uh, again, as followers of Jesus, we better make sure that Jesus we're following is real, is scriptural. And so that's our desired outcome. Let's elevate Christ and see who he is in Scripture. And that's right in line with John's uh, desired outcome for his entire book, as we've been seeing. Because in John chapter 20, verse 31... He says that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so we have a biblical mandate this morning, right? Isn't that wonderful when we can look in Scripture and say, all right, I mean, that's clear guidance. Let's read this book to come to those conclusions for that end, right, that we might have eternal life. And so John wants us to know and believe that Jesus is the Christ. And we spent some time last week looking at what it meant that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life through his name. That's John's desire, so that's our desire. And so over the last five lessons, we did an introduction and then we did four lessons, we've learned some things about Jesus. We learned that Jesus is the incarnate word. That is, he's God's word of revelation. He's God's word of creation. He's God's word of self-expression. He's God's word of salvation. And he's all of that become flesh. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. We learned that He's the incarnate Word. We learned that He's our divine deliverer. That is, He's the promised one from Isaiah 40 that John the Baptist introduces. He's the one who will come to deliver us from the captivity of our sin. Then we learned that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's that promised, spirit-filled servant from Isaiah's servant songs that culminates in Isaiah 53, where we see that servant giving himself as a sacrificial lamb for our sin. And then, last week, we learned that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised king. He's the promised king who would ascend the throne of David and who would be given a worldwide kingdom, which he would govern with righteousness and justice and peace for all of eternity. And that's just in John chapter 1. I mean, what are we in for here, the rest of this book? Well, this morning, our study of the person of Jesus continues. In addition to understanding that he's the incarnate word and the divine deliverer and the Lamb of God and the Messiah, this morning, we're going to take a few minutes just to consider what it means when he says that he is the Son of Man, the Son of Man. And so let's read John 1, verse 43 through 51. Now remember, this is shortly after John the Baptist has pointed to Jesus, saying this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist has had his own disciples. He's preparing them to receive the Messiah. When Jesus comes on the scene, he points to Christ, and they, some, begin to follow Jesus. Okay? So the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was born from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, 
Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Thus far, following John the Baptist's testimony, a few have begun to follow Jesus. Two of John's disciples, one of them's unnamed, may very well be John, the writer, the apostle. And so, and then Andrew began to follow. Andrew ran, he, he couldn't contain his excitement. He runs and he goes and finds Cephas, also Simon, later being Peter. Uh, and then uh, what we find is that Jesus uh, calls out a man named Philip. Philip begins to follow. But then Philip, in his excitement, goes and he runs and he finds Nathaniel. And he exclaims, we found him. We found him. We found the one that Moses wrote about, the one that we have been waiting for, the one that the prophets predicted. We found him. And then he goes, it's Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Well, Nathaniel's skeptical. Nathaniel knows Nazareth. The, the, the Old Testament doesn't reference Nazareth. There's no prophecies of Nazareth. No, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Uh, small town, obscure uh, population, probably under 1,000 people. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And then Philip says to him, well, come and see. Come and see. And so Nathaniel would have to see for himself. So Nathaniel is a little bit of a skeptic, a little bit of a skeptic here. And really, he just needs to see for himself what Philip's talking about. So, so Nathaniel comes with Philip. They come near Jesus. And then look in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Ah, it's Nathaniel, a true Israelite. One in whom there is no deceit. What, what does that mean? Well, it's a commentary on Nathaniel's character, first of all. He's honest. He's not deceitful. There's no duplicity. There's no falsehood. I think Nathaniel's the kind of guy who just tells you what he thinks, and not in a rude way, but he's just out in the open. Nazareth? Nazareth? Well, what good can come out of Nazareth, right? Uh, he's honest. He's upfront. But with that statement, Jesus begins an exchange with Nathaniel that's very interesting. It's a very curious exchange. Jesus has chosen these words wisely. And so he calls Nathaniel, Nathaniel an Israelite indeed, because I believe he's referencing another character in the Old Testament. This, I think, is a reference to the very first Israelite named Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name eventually was changed to Israel, and he's the progenitor of the nation of Israel. Uh, and so Jesus begins to use this terminology, kind of comparing Nathaniel to Jacob. But it's a comparison. By contrast, Jacob was known as a lying cheat, a trickster, deceitful. And so what Jesus is saying is, Nathaniel, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And so it's actually a comparison by contrast to that first Israelite, Jacob. In fact, Jacob's own brother Esau called him a lying cheat in Genesis 27. We'll learn more about that in a minute. And so Jesus begins this interesting comparison and contrast with Nathaniel. Uh, why? I think the ultimate purpose here is that Jesus would reveal something amazing about himself uh, to Nathaniel and to the other disciples. That's going to become clear in a minute. And so Nathaniel responds to Jesus as if Jesus like hit the nail on the head. How do you know me? It's like, uh, 
He just kind of felt the peering eyes of Jesus there. Jesus just kind of nailed his character. How do you know me? And now Jesus responds in a way that's kind of challenged commentators. I have a theory about it. I'm not going to share my theory because it's just theory. But uh, Jesus responds and says, Before Philip called you, when you you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And so Nathaniel's saying, how do you know me? And Jesus simply says, hey, when you're under the fig tree. I mean, in the very least, what Jesus is showing us here is that he could see uh, uh, Nathaniel in some way that didn't make any sense from a natural senses uh, point of view. In other words, he had some insight, and I would say some divine insight. Uh, But we don't know what... Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. We don't know why it's significant, uh, so significant to Nathaniel. Because whatever this means, whatever Jesus means when he says, I saw you, was so impactful to Nathaniel that he responds and says, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. So from that initial skeptic to all of a sudden, all Jesus has to say is, I saw you under the fig tree, and all of a sudden he's confessing Jesus as the son of God, the king of Israel. So something significant there. Uh, We don't exactly know what it is. But notice Nathaniel's character. So quick to spout his skepticism, but also so quick to confess Jesus as the Son of God, the King of Israel. That's the type of guy that he is. And so uh, he confesses Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And notice that Nathaniel's confession is exactly what John the Apostle has written his book to uh, elicit, that confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's exactly what Nathaniel confesses here. Well, He's the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. And so Nathaniel now is a follower of Jesus, confessing him as the Son of God. Uh, well, look at verse 51. Jesus responds to Nathaniel and says, that's a pretty quick confession. Pretty quick confession, all of a sudden. Full-throated, exuberant confession, just because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. And then Jesus says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Like, kind of buckle up, Nathaniel. You think that was, you think that was a uh, indication of who I am? Just wait, uh, because you're going to see far more than this. And then in verse 51, he indicates kind of what Nathaniel can expect to see as he begins to follow Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, I said earlier that when Nathanael came on the scene, Jesus seems to be invoking this language, comparing or contrasting Nathanael to Jacob of the Old Testament. Well, it's very explicit here in verse 51. When Jesus says, you will see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, he's making a clear allusion to Genesis 28. And so let's turn to Genesis 28. And there we're going to see the significance of, of this phrase and what it has to do with us and uh, what it means as far as our understanding of who Jesus is. So Genesis 28 is that passage that Jesus is uh, basically quoting here in verse 51. Context, Jacob is on the run. I mean, this is the fruit of his deceit. He's deceived his dad, tricked him into blessing him. He's cheated his brother out of a birthright. His brother now is angry. His brother wants to kill him, and he has to run away. Genesis 28.10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under the head and lay down uh, in the place to sleep. In that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. 
and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you, give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. When Jesus says you will see heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending, he's referring to this passage clearly. As Jacob slept, he has a dream. And this dream is a vision actually given to him by God, and he sees a ladder. The, the, the word there, ladder, could be staircase. It could be ramp. I, I like the idea of staircase or stairway, just visually. It seems a lot better than angels coming up and down on a ladder. But, uh, but very well could be translated stairway. Some people visualize almost like a ziggurat-type situation, but at least you could say stairway. I'm going to call it a, a stairway. And so he sees the stairway connecting heaven to earth. At the top of that stairway is God himself. And on the stairway are angels going up and down, ascending and descending. And so as Jacob beholds this vision, God speaks to him. And what does he say? Well, he makes promises. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a multitude of descendants. And I'm going to bless all nations through you. What is that? He's reaffirming to Jacob the Abrahamic covenant. That's his grandpa. Right? And so God had called out Abraham and had made this promise. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you innumerable descendants through your offspring. I'm going to bless all nations. And I'm with you. And I will never leave you. And I will fulfill all of my promises. And now he's reaffirming this to Jacob. At a time when Jacob's on the run. Like as a consequence of his own sin. Uh, if anybody didn't deserve these promises, it's Jacob, right? Jacob's very name means trickster or deceiver. There's a reason why God changes his name later to Israel. Right, uh, And so Jacob is receiving these promises because he's the descendant of Abraham. And so, amazing, undeserved by Jacob. And so, so amazing and so undeserved that there may be some question in Jacob's mind, will God actually fulfill these promises to me? And so God accompanies this vision with, and these promises with, I'm sorry, these promises with a vision of that stairway. Why? The stairway represents or symbolizes God's presence on earth. Kind of peels back the curtain so that Jacob could get a view of the spiritual realm. And say, wait a second, there's a channel here. The very presence of God coming from heaven to earth. Practically, it represents the fact that God is active on earth. God is fulfilling his promises. He's fulfilling his promises out of faithfulness to his people. What's the point? God would have Jacob understand that he's not a distant God. The angels coming and going up and down the staircase represent God's power and activity in the affairs of men. He makes promises and he keeps promises. And he has all the power to not only fulfill those promises, but to sustain his people so that they will actually experience the benefit of those promises. The idea being that Jacob can be confident that God will fulfill all the promises he has made First to his grandfather Abraham, and now to him. Why? Because God is present, and God is powerful, and God protects, and God always fulfills his promises, and those all start with peace, so you know it's true. So God gives this vision to Jacob. 
I am the God of Abraham. I'm the covenant-making God and the covenant-keeping God. And I am present and I'm powerful and I can fulfill all of these promises. And he does it at a time in Jacob's life when Jacob is anything but deserving of those promises. Now look at Jacob's response in verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Now, if I was living in a place named Luz, I'd probably want to rename it too. So Jacob renames it Bethel, which means the house of God. And so Jacob wakes up in fear. He's seeing these angels ascending and descending, understanding that he's there in the very presence of God and hearing God's voice. And, and so he calls the place the house of God. God's presence is here. He says, this is the gate of heaven. This is where access can be had to the presence of God. And he sets up a monument. Later on in the history of Israel, the tabernacle and the temple would be that place where Israel would understand that's where the presence of God was. And this was really a precursor to that, where um, Jacob experiences God's presence and power uh, on earth at Bethel. So here's the question. Why does Jesus appeal to this passage? Why does Jesus, in responding to Nathanael, reference this situation with Jacob? I don't think Jesus is comparing himself to Jacob. I think Jesus is comparing Nathanael to Jacob and saying to Nathanael, you will have a similar experience to Jacob when you follow me. That is, like Jacob, you'll witness the angels of God ascending and descending. That has something to do with the power and the presence and the promises of God. Interestingly, he, again, doesn't compare himself to Jacob, though there are parallels there that we see elsewhere in Scripture, but that's not his point here. The idea is this, whereas in Jacob's vision, the stairway is what connected heaven and earth, Jesus is now that which connects heaven and earth. At one point it was a place, and now it's a person. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the one that connects heaven to earth. Whereas the stairway was the channel through which God's power came to earth, Jesus is now the channel through which God's power has come to earth. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, referring to Jesus. Whereas the stairway represented God's heavenly presence on earth, Jesus is now the source of God's presence on earth. And that's why when his birth was announced, what did the angel say? He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Whereas Jacob recognized that place as the house of God or the gate of heaven, Jesus is now the dwelling place of God's presence on earth and the only means to heaven. So he could say, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Sounds a lot like a gate, doesn't it? There's also parallels in the purpose of Jacob's vision. Whereas God provided for Jacob the vision of a stairway, In order to bolster Jacob's faith in God's promises and his promise-keeping ability, Jesus is saying to Nathanael and to the other disciples that they can have confidence that God will fulfill all of his promises through him. And that's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. They're all fulfilled in Jesus. 
That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory, Paul says. So all of this then, I think, raises another question. How can it be that a man could be the link between heaven and earth? How can it be that a man could be a mediator between God and man? How can it be that a man can be the gate between heaven and earth? How can it be said of a man that he is God's presence uh, on earth? The answer is seen in the rest of what Jesus says to Nathanael in John chapter 1. And so he says, Nathanael, as you follow me, you're going to see greater things than these. In John 1.51, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Son of Man. There's no ladder anymore, is there? The angels are not going to be ascending and descending on a ladder. He says they're going to be ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself. Far and away, this is his favorite title for himself, designation for himself. And this has served Jesus well throughout his earthly ministry, or it will, because there's really a dual meaning to the idea of son of man. On one hand, and you might actually hear this the way that it's used occasionally, still in a modern setting, son of man can be used simply to refer to a human being. That's the way it's used in Ezekiel over and over and over and over again. Ezekiel is called the son of man. It's just a reference to the fact of, to his humanity. You're a man. So Jesus at times used the Son of Man, and some of his hearers are only hearing, oh, he's referring to the fact that he's, he's a man. It's really a, a humble uh, moniker. But there's a far deeper meaning, a far deeper meaning that Jesus is purposely invoking. And for those who have ears to hear, those who are theologically astute, those who know the Scriptures, they will know exactly what Jesus means when he calls himself the Son of Man. So where do we find that? Well, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. I hope I'm not losing any of you here. Uh, if we're going to understand the strength of what Jesus is saying here, then we've got we to gotta pursue this phrase as well. And so whereas Jesus was making an allusion to Genesis 28 and Jacob and his vision, first, now he's making an allusion to another vision. Some 900 years after Jacob's vision. Whereas Jacob is the progenitor of Israel, and Israel hadn't become a nation yet uh, when Jacob had his vision, uh, Daniel, hundreds of years later, is at a time where Israel, all Jacob's descendants are there. There's a nation now, the nation of Israel, uh, 900 years of history, and they're on the brink of being, I'm sorry, they are in captivity in Babylon. And so Jesus references Daniel 7, where Daniel then has a vision And this is it in Daniel 7, verse 1. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay on his bed. At least Daniel has a bed and not a rock for a pillow. Come a long way in 900 years. Uh, Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. We're not going to read a chunk of this for the sake of time. But he goes on to describe a vision with apocalyptic imagery. He sees strange beasts, predators devouring Uh, Daniel's vision was meant to communicate the future rise and fall of mighty kingdoms. And very clearly, I mean, the the near, sort of near application there, you see a prediction of uh, Persia, uh, the Medes and the Persians. You see prediction of the Greeks and even the Romans there in those visions that Daniel has, uh, these kingdoms that are going to come and oppress God's people and oppose God's purposes. And so Daniel sees that vision. And it has application there uh, in that, uh, that future 
And uh, we're going to see how that's used later on in the New Testament, indicating that there still remains yet a fulfillment of this vision as well. But bottom line, his vision is about kingdoms which will oppose God's people, uh, oppose God and oppress God's people. And so uh, oftentimes, however, when God gives us a glimpse of coming judgment, he also gives hope. And so Daniel's vision is actually a vision of hope. It sees a future day when all those wicked nations who oppress God's people and oppose God's purposes will receive a just judgment from God himself. And so that's where we take up in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, that's God, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. This is speaking of judgment. Judgment by God himself. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And the idea being that these wicked nations who are risen up against God's people and opposing God face judgment from God himself. Their dominion is taken away. But this vision is more than about dominion being taken away from the wicked. It's also a vision of hope, speaking of one who will receive dominion. And look in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so seeing these nations come before God and they're judged for their oppression of God's people and their opposition to God's purposes, uh, Daniel then sees one, a figure, who he describes as simply one like a son of man, which seems very out of place here in this heavenly scene, one like a son of man. And he comes before the Ancient of Days, before God, and he is given dominion. But now notice how this figure arrives. Daniel says he appears to be just a man the Son of Man. But he arrives how? He says, with the clouds of heaven. With the clouds of heaven. Very interesting because biblically, it's God and God alone who rides the clouds. It's God and God alone who is the cloud rider. Psalm 104, verse 1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God. You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides the wings of the wind. A psalm which is designed to show how God is set apart from every other creature and every other being says that he rides on the clouds like a chariot. Isaiah warned Egypt in Isaiah 19 and said, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. The imagery of the cloud rider is reserved for God alone. It represents his majesty and his dominion and his might in judgment. Yet in Daniel's vision, 
He sees one who appears to be like a son of man, a human being riding on the clouds. In Daniel's vision, God then gives this cloud-riding figure dominion and glory and a kingdom, a universal kingdom for all nations, all peoples, all languages, that they would all serve him. Not only does he give them a universal kingdom, but an everlasting dominion that shall, uh, it says that it shall not pass away. And not only a universal kingdom and an everlasting kingdom, but an almighty kingdom, he says it will never be destroyed. Now look at Daniel's response to this vision in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So Daniel, Daniel, understandably so, is anxious and alarmed. And he's given a partial interpretation of this vision. He's saying that this is a vision of hope. The beast will be destroyed, the kings will be judged, but despite their ferocity and their intent to dominate, what does he say? The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So the question, who is the divine cloud rider? Who is this cloud rider who's referred to as the Son of Man? Who is this one who's going to secure an eternal kingdom uh, for his saints? Fast forward to the New Testament in Matthew 24. Jesus himself says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus explicitly says, I am the cloud rider. I am the Son of Man. I am the one from Daniel's vision who will receive dominion and glory and a throne and a kingdom that will last forever. Matthew 25, verse 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And there is the Son of Man, the cloud rider, establishing his kingdom, and what? Giving it as an inheritance to his saints, just as Daniel said. In Matthew 26, when the high priest says to Jesus, Tell us, are you the Son of God? He responds and says, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming, how? On the clouds of heaven. On the clouds of heaven. Jesus is the one like a son of man. Jesus is the divine cloud rider. Jesus is the one who has received power and dominion and a kingdom. Jesus is the one who has secured a kingdom for his saints. Jesus is the one before whom all nations will one day have to stand and receive judgment. It's because of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7 that the Jews were expecting a powerful figure to come one day who could be described as the son of man. Is this reason why Jesus early on in his earthly ministry, takes this title upon himself. So, we asked a question earlier. How can a mediator between God and man, uh, how could a man be a mediator between God and man? 
How could a man be one who connects heaven to earth? The fulfillment of the stairway of Jacob's vision, uh, how could that fulfillment be seen in a man? Well, it can be seen in a man if that man is the God-man. It can be seen in a man if that man is divine. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. He is the stairway that connects heaven to earth because he is actually God in the flesh. And so back to John 1. Jesus combines both these visions together. Matthew, I'm sorry, Genesis 28, Daniel 7, combines them both together in responding to Nathaniel. Why? We're going to conclude here. Remember that the initial vision given to Jake was about God's promises to Abraham. God's promises to Abraham. The promise to give land and descendants and to bless all nations through his offspring. The vision of the latter was given to Jacob to assure him that God will fulfill all of his his promises and is capable to do so. His power and his presence was active on earth and accomplishing all of his purposes. Jesus would have Nathanael and the other disciples understand that all those Abrahamic promises that were then confirmed to Jacob and to others and to David and so on will be fulfilled through and in him. He was the very presence of God on earth, exercising divine power and accomplishing all of God's purposes flawlessly. The disciples would get a front row seat of this. Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, you follow me, you're going to see incredible things. They're going to hear his authoritative, heart-rending words as he preached. They're going to see his nature-defying miracles. They're going to witness his dominion over the spiritual realm as he exercises demons. They're going to be eyewitnesses to his divine character. They're going to experience his life-giving grace. They're all going to be witnesses to the resurrection. They're going to get a glimpse of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. In seeing the power of God on display and the presence of God manifest and the promises of God fulfilled, it would be as if they were seeing the angels of God ascending and descending upon Christ. But why the Son of Man? Because Jesus would have them know that as they observed his earthly ministry, displaying the power of God and manifesting the presence of God and fulfilling the promises of God, it was going to lead to one significant end. No matter what happened to Jesus in his earthly ministry, up to and including his own death, they could be assured that he was the Son of Man who would receive dominion. He was and is the Son of Man who would receive glory in a kingdom. No matter if he was rejected by those around him, All nations and all languages and all people would one day serve him. No matter who exercised dominion in the disciples' day, and we can say no matter who exercised dominion in our day, he will receive an everlasting dominion which will never pass away. And they and we, his saints, will come to possess, possess that same kingdom forever and ever. Would they have understood all of that simply because he said, I'm the son of man? No, not in that moment. But Jesus is here laying a foundation that he's going to expand upon all throughout his earthly ministry. And he's providing something for them to look back and reflect upon after his resurrection. And as they have the Holy Spirit in them and they start doing that Old Testament theology, they're going to start seeing all of these things in the scriptures. And their strength is going to, or their faith is going to be strengthened. So what's our takeaway this morning? Besides just standing in awe of the person of Jesus. I mean, that's a good enough application, right? But what's our takeaway? Remember that Jacob was given this vision of God's power and presence while he was running for his life from his brother. Absolutely undeserving. Daniel was given this vision of God's power and might in the 
and the promise of a future deliverer when everything seemed bleak for the future of Israel while they are in Babylonian captivity. The point is whether in the face of our own failures or trials or struggles, we can be confident that God is not absent, even in the face of our own sinfulness, we can be confident that God is not absent. If we could peel back the curtain, we would be able to see that God is all around us working and active. He's not distant. He's not absent. He has not forsaken those who are his, but he's working all things for our good at all times. And he's doing so through Jesus Christ. And he's doing so even when our circumstances all scream out something uh, entirely different. Every promise which we have in Jesus will be fulfilled for our good, even when our circumstances seem to deny it. He who promised is faithful and has proven it to us by sending Jesus, the Son of Man, in the flesh. Through him, he has united heaven and earth together and has brought us into the presence of God. Through Jesus, he will satisfy every promise, and all these promises will one day culminate in you and I, becoming the inheritors of an eternal kingdom over which Jesus exercises dominion for all of eternity. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for Jesus. I pray you'd help us to rest in the fact that Jesus rules and reigns. He rules and reigns now. He has dominion now. He has ascended to his throne now. We can be confident that as nations rage, as men rebel, Jesus ultimately exercises dominion. All will give an answer to him. All will bow the knee. And all will serve him. Not only this, but we as his saints will be inheritors of that eternal kingdom and that we will rule and reign with him. Lord, we just thank you for the mighty power of Jesus. And Lord, we pray this morning for those who may be here who are struggling, believers. Uh, You gave a vision to Jacob and to Daniel where they were able to get a glimpse behind the scenes. They were able to see your power and see your plan. But oftentimes, Lord, we, we don't have that same perspective. And so we can allow our circumstances to cloud what we ought to recognize and know about you and your working. And besides this, Lord, we understand that you don't need to pull back the curtain because you've actually given us your son who actually came and walked this earth. So you've shown us your purposes and your power and your plan. And so, Lord, help us to trust Jesus even when our circumstances scream otherwise. Help us to trust his power and his presence, his ability. And uh, so, Lord, we pray that you bring comfort to those who may be struggling. Help them to rest in Jesus. And then, Lord, we pray this morning for any who are here who are not believers, not yet Christians. I pray that they would understand their need to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, understanding his power to save them. And then also, I pray that they'd recognize if there's rebellion in their hearts, that uh, Jesus has dominion and that all men will stand before him in judgment. And the question will be what they've done with him. And so, Lord, I pray that they'd see their need to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord and to get on the right side of his kingdom. Lord, we thank you for this. I pray that you'd help us to glorify Jesus uh, as we seek to live for him. And uh, Lord, we just thank you that all power and dominion belongs to him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.